Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Frank Pizor. So without further ado, here he is. And we're going to look at going against the grain for God. Jeremiah chapter 38. I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes going against the grain can be a lot of fun. For instance, uh, like wearing a mullet. After 20 years, after a mullet has gone out of fashion, that can be kind of fun sometimes. It's fun, first of all, because you might like the ponytail that you get to wear when you have a mullet. But I think it's even more enjoyable that you get to annoy people who come up to you and ask you, why are you wearing this thing that's out of fashion, which only prods you to wear it even longer. Does that make sense? Sometimes going against the grain can be a lot of fun. Unfortunately, when we look at things from a spiritual or a biblical perspective, going against the grain, which is something that we know we should be doing as Christians. We know that we should be salt and light. We know that we should be different. But going against the grain for God, it's not always so easy. And that's one of the lessons that we're going to learn today as we look at Jeremiah chapter 38. So why don't you uh, look with me? I'm going to read the verses really quick. And then we're going to just talk about them. We're going to give you a couple things. We're going to give you what the situation is, the major players, and some lessons learned. Let's just read the first few verses. Shephatiah, son of Matan, Gedaliah, son of Peshur, Jehuchal, son of Shelemiah, and Peshur, son of Malchajiah, heard what Jeremiah was telling all the people when he said, This is what the Lord says. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine or plague but whoever goes over to the babylonians will live he will escape with his life he will live and this is what the lord says this city will certainly be handed over to the army of the king of babylon who will capture it then the officials said to the king this man should be put to death he is discouraging the soldiers who are left in the city as well as all the people by the things that he is saying to them This man is not seeking the good of these people, but their ruin. First, let's talk about the situation. The situation is 586 B.C., and the Babylonians have laid siege to the city of Jerusalem. Now, this isn't the first time it's happened. It's actually the third time, and it's ultimately going to be the last time. The first time that Nebuchadnezzar came and besieged the city and ultimately conquered it was in 605 B.C. under the reign of the Korean king Jehoiakim. Just making sure you're paying attention. He came a second time in 597 when the Chinese king Jehoiachin was reigning. Okay, that's good. At least you're paying attention. Those are the only jokes, by the way. We're pretty much done. Forget I'd get rid of him in the beginning. The third time here when Zedekiah is king. Now, the whole situation is pretty simple. Over and over and over and over And over again, God has spoken to the southern kingdom and has said, wake up and change your ways. If you don't change your ways, judgment will ultimately come. Now, if the Babylonians have come back three times, God has given them three warnings and has really let them know, listen, you're now going to face the consequences of your continued rebellion. Not that rebellion is okay at any point in time to God, but when we do rebel and we realize our rebellion and repent, then God restores us. 
But these people have decided that listening to the way God wants us to do things just isn't going to happen. We're going to try to have the best of both worlds. And that's how they find themselves in this situation. And because of their disobedience, the time ultimately has come when God has brought judgment for the third and final time through the Babylonians. And now the people of Jerusalem are experiencing the ugly consequences of their sin. There's only so long a person or a group of people can turn their back on God before God responds. Now, the hope is that they'll be restored, but we'll see in the end that they really don't. And now here at the siege, the situation is ugly. And it's ugly because it has lasted for such a time that the people are now about to starve. And in order to feed themselves, they have gotten to a place where they're actually killing their own children and eating them. It's a serious situation that they're in. They're out of food and they're in trouble. Now, there's four major groups or major players in this whole story that I want us to see and help understand. The first one is the Gang of Four. No, it's not the four Chinese leaders in the Communist Revolution, but it's the Gang of Four, not that singing group either. But the Gang of Four here, which are Shephathiah, Gedaliah, Peshur, and Jehuchal. I don't know, I'm not saying the name's right, so it's good that nobody here is Hebrew and getting mad at me. But there's a basic thing that's going on with this Gang of Four. They're listening to the message that Jeremiah is preaching. And it's a simple message. Verse 2, it says this. This is what the Lord says. Whoever stays in the city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But whoever goes over to the Babylonians will live. He will escape with his life. He will live. And this is what the Lord says. This city will certainly be handed over to the army of the king of Babylon who will capture it. Jeremiah's message is pretty simple. Listen, you can surrender and give yourselves up to the Babylonians and you'll live. It's a great bargain, okay? You've blown it. Here's an opportunity to hear the voice of God, do what God asks you to do, and live. However, if you don't, here's what's going to happen. Some of you are going to die by the sword. So when they break down the walls and they're running through the city, some of you are going to be killed. During this siege, some of you are going to die from the famine or the pestilence that's going around, and it's going to be a difficult situation. But if you just listen to God, you'll be okay. You'll live. You may not be free like you are now in a sense, but the freedom that you have is no freedom at all, is it? So just surrender. Give yourselves over to the Babylonians and everything will be cool. Now, if you're Jeremiah, that's not a very positive message. And if you're a government leader, when you hear a message like that telling your people to surrender to your enemy, you're not going to be very happy. In fact, the New Living Translation says in verse 5 that they call Jeremiah a traitor. This traitor must be killed. Because what he's doing is he's messing with the people. It's very interesting the way they put it in verse 4. This man should be put to death. He is discouraging the soldiers. In other words, he's making them weak. I mean, if you're a soldier in an army and you have a chaplain running around saying, hey, guys, it's over. We are not going to win. You're either going to die or you're going to go into captivity. Isn't that a great option? That's not going to be a very positive message. So it's, it's understandable that they would consider him to be a traitor. Here's what they say. This man is not seeking the good or the peace or the shalom, the way things ought to be in God's eyes, but he's actually looking for the rune of the people. These guys are ultra-naturalists. They may even be godly men in a sense that they look back to Isaiah 37 and say, 
we remember when Hezekiah was in the situation and he prayed to God and God saved the city. And they might be thinking, there's no way God is going to destroy Jerusalem. It's his city. He hasn't done it yet and he won't do it. But they're gravely mistaken. They have definitely made a mistake. And so they're angry and they want Jeremiah, (coughs) excuse me, they want Jeremiah to be killed because he's ruining everything. That's our first major set of players. The second player is Jeremiah. (coughs) I don't know how much you know about Jeremiah, but Jeremiah is considered the weeping prophet. He's the one who wrote Lamentations. It's just one lament, one long song of weeping, how, how much he is grieved, how much his heart is broken as to what's going on. At a young age, God called Jeremiah, and he said, Jeremiah, you're going to be my prophet. And, and you're going to help nations. You're going you're to build them or you're going to uproot them, but you're just going to speak for me. And Jeremiah's response, like many people, is an excuse. And so he says, God, I'm too young. You know, I'm just a young guy. There's no way I could possibly be a prophet for you. And God's answer is great. He says, I understand. You're too young. Forget it. I'll get somebody else. Now, he doesn't say that at all, does he? He says, Whatever. In a modern vernacular, I don't care how young you are. This is what's going to happen. Jeremiah, you're going to tell people about me. You're going to go where I tell you to go. You're going to say what I tell you to say. And here's the really cool thing. Don't be afraid of them because I will rescue you. Or in the modern translation is, once you get beaten and hammered and thrown in the stocks, not to be confused with the Dow Jones, once you get thrown in prison, all those things, don't worry. I will still rescue you. Isn't that a great prophetic call? Wouldn't that be great? I said, you know what, Dave, I'm up here and I'm looking at you today. And I say, I have a feeling that as a teacher, things are going to change for you in school. And and you're just going to start speaking the word of God at school. But I want you to know you're going to get fired. And you're going to be unemployed for five or six years. And you're probably going to lose your home. And your kids are going to end up going to public schools. And I'm sorry, but that's what it's going to be. Isn't that wonderful? Aren't you going to sign up today for that? Yes, you are. Right on, brother. You don't get a choice in the end. Well, I mean, it's only an illustration. So don't freak out. And if you get fired, don't blame me. But that's what's happening with Jeremiah. That's the call. And the thing about Jeremiah is he internalizes the call. He doesn't just have this job and say, okay, God, what do you want me to do today? And I'm going to be God's prophet and I'm going to speak whatever I'm supposed to speak. But he carries this burden with him for God and for God's people. And so Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because it hurts him so much to see his people turning away from God turning away from life, and heading towards ruin. And yet the gang of four has the nerve to say, this guy is not seeking their good, but their ruin, which is not true at all. So we have this Jeremiah who has this prophetic ministry that's going to be a painful ministry, and even if he tries to hold it in, it becomes like a fire within him, and he has to let it out. What's our next group of players? King Zedekiah, verses 4 through 6. Let's look at them. Then the officials said to the king, which is Zedekiah, the last king, this man should be put to death. He is discouraging or weakening the resolve of the soldiers who are left in the city as well as all the people by saying these things to them. This man is not seeking the good of these people but their ruin. King Zedekiah's response is classic. He is in your hands. The king is can do nothing to oppose you. There's a disconnect here. 
He's the king. And as the king, he can do whatever he wants. If he says, you know what, guys? I don't really like this idea. Forget it. We're not going to do it. We could do that. But the problem with Zedekiah is his weakness. He has a character flaw. He doesn't like confrontation. When the uh, Egyptians came and said, dude, you're king, he said, okay, that's fine. I'm king. I'll do whatever you say. <clears throat> when these guys came up to him and they said, you know what? We really need to change the way we do business here. We're under the foot of the Babylonians. And so what we're going to do now is we want to get out of the foot, from under, out from under their foot. We want to be an ally with the Egyptians again, and then we can get away from the Babylonians. He said, fine, that's what we'll do. The Babylonians show up at the door. That's a problem. Now here in the midst of all of this, when he's under all of this pressure, they say, let's kill Jeremiah. He says, okay, whatever you do, whatever you want. And we're going to find later on in the story when someone else comes along and says, let's do something else. He does that too. Zedekiah is basically a weak king. He's one of those people who, in a sense, refuses to go against the grain. Wherever the wind blows, that's where Zedekiah is going to be because he doesn't want to have any form of confrontation with people. And so look what happens. Verse 6. So they took Jeremiah and put him into the cistern of Malchijah, the king's son, which was in the courtyard of the guard. And they lowered Jeremiah by ropes into the cistern, and it had no water in it, only mud. And Jeremiah sank down into the mud. Here's the interesting thing about this. You have a weak king. You have a weeping prophet. You have a gang of four who are ultra-nationalists, who really want to see the city of Jerusalem delivered. And in the midst of all of that, this weak king allows them to decide what's going to happen with Jeremiah. And so what happens? They take Jeremiah and they put him in this cistern and they let him sink down. And here's the interesting thing about this. They want him dead. But instead of killing him outright, like hanging him or chopping his head off, they lower him into this cistern that really is just about dry, except it's just a bunch of mud, so that ultimately what's going to happen to Jeremiah, as he's there, he's going to be sucked into this mud and will ultimately uh, die of either suffocation or starvation or whatever it is. This gang of four are also cowards. See, they're not doing what they said they want to do. They're going to let God take care of it. It's a kind of bloodless sort of murder in the sense that they're saying, listen, as he sinks in this mud and he's nowhere to go, just like quickstand, when he dies, it's because God let him die. Does that make sense? Because God was the one who did it. And if God really wanted to rescue him, God would have, because if his message was true, then God would have come along and saved him. But you know what? Since he's going to die in there, then it really is true that we're listening to God. And so the city has hope. Because God's going to rescue us. Do you see how mixed up that thinking begins to get? Because they're so dead set in their ways of rebellion that they cannot hear the voice of God. To a point that even though they want Jeremiah dead, they cannot kill him themselves. They too are going against the grain, but it's the grain of God and it's going to get them into trouble. This leads us to our fourth player, Ebed-Melech. I'm just going to call him E.M. if you don't mind. I'm really having a problem with these names. I'd call him Malik, but my daughter has a friend named Malik. So then I'll be thinking of a girl and not of this guy. And so on and on. So I'm just going to call him E.M. if that's okay with you. E.M. was an Ethiopian eunuch. Isn't it interesting? There's two Ethiopian eunuchs in the Bible. One in Acts chapter 8 and the one here. And both of them are God seekers. So if you want to see God, the moral of the story is being an Ethiopian eunuch. 
No, it's not. <clears throat> Here's the situation. Let's read the verses and then go back. Ebed Melech, a Cushite, or Ethiopian, an official in the royal place, which in another version says eunuch, heard that they had put Jeremiah in the cistern. And while the king was sitting at the Benjamin gate, Ebed Melech went out of the palace and said to him, My lord the king, these men have acted wickedly in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet. They have thrown him into a cistern where he will starve to death when there is no longer any bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed Melech the Cushite, Take thirty men from here with you and lift Jeremiah the prophet out of the cistern before he dies. Wow, what a man of courage, huh? That Zedekiah. Somebody says something and he does it. In absolute contrast to Ebed Melech. Because what he hears is, hey, Jeremiah, the prophet, the one who has been warning us about this impending doom and has been right all along, has now been punished by this gang of four and thrown into a cistern. And when Ibn Malik hears this, he goes, no, that is not right. That is absolutely wrong. How can these guys do that? And so what I think are two things about Ibn Malik is, first of all, that he is sensitive to God. Now, remember, he's just a eunuch, so he doesn't have a lot of power. It's not like he can go around and be like a prime minister and say how things are going to go. But when he hears what's going on as an ordinary man, he is sensitive to God in such a way that he hears God say, go and deliver Jeremiah. But before you do that, you need to go to the king. And so in being sensitive to God, he acts, he responds. Many of us, as we try to follow Christ, are very sensitive to God. The disconnect comes when we are responding to him because we don't act. It's not enough to have compassion or concern about someone or something. It counts when we actually do something with that concern. So God has spoken to Ebed-Melech, and he responds, and he goes to the king, and he says, basically, Big Z, not to be confused with Carlos Zambrano. He says, Big Z, you've got this messed up. You're missing something. Do you not understand that the advice that these guys have given you is bad? They have told you to kill this Jeremiah guy, the very guy who loves you. The very guy who is speaking to you from God so that you might find God and return to God. And you've thrown him in the cistern. It's almost like he'd want to say, I guess, maybe in the vernacular, what are you, stupid? And in a sense, he is a fool. And in a sense, he redeems himself when he says, you know what, go. Go get Jeremiah and set him free. See, what you have here is a situation where these four groups of people are working together in this very difficult situation. This gang of four is going against the grain of God, and it's going to get him into trouble. The king himself, a weak man, goes wherever the wind blows. But there's two people, Jeremiah and Ibn Melech, both men who are going against the grain for God. Here's the lessons learned in this. So we have our situation. It's a desperate and dire situation. Things are not good. We have our four groups of players who are working against each other and sometimes working with each other in order to get to this place. Here's the learn lessons we can learn from this. Number one, obedience is risky because it often costs us something. Obedience is risky because it often costs us something. For instance, Jeremiah. Jeremiah all throughout his life has gone against the grain. 
This message that he is preaching here is not a new message. It's not like it just came up. It's a message that he has preached throughout most of his life. Guys, wake up. This is bad. We have turned our backs on God. Judgment is coming. Snap out of it. And if you would snap out of it, if you would snap out of it, God will return to us and we shall be saved. But nothing ever happens. People never change. And so what does he experience? He experiences rejection. He experiences beatings. He experiences imprisonment. And in the end, he's going to experience exile. So for Jeremiah, his obedience basically costs him just about everything except his life. Jeremiah reminds me a lot of the person who lives their life for God, doing whatever God wants them to do, just as Jeremiah did, only to find out that they don't get the great blessings that other people seem to get. Instead, what they get is great trial and tribulation. And that tries many a soul, doesn't it? Again, is it easy to follow God? Is it easy to follow God when things are always difficult and you never seem to get over the hump? And yet Jeremiah says, yes, I will do that. Realizing that obedience is risky. That going against the grain for God is going to cost him something and it cost him a lot. But then there's Ebed Melech. He was also obedient to a point. I mean, again, look at verse 7 and how that reads. <clears throat> it says, Ebed Melech, a Cushite, an official in the royal planet, palace, heard that they had put Jeremiah into the cistern. While the king was sitting in the Benjamin gate, Ebed Melech went out to the palace and said to him, First thing that he does wrong is that he goes and he talks to the king. Now, you've heard us before talk about this that you just don't walk up to the king and say, Hey, brother, what's happening? You know, like Desmond, Hey, brother, you must get off this island. No, he doesn't say that. You just don't go up to the king. It's the king says, hey, come here. But Ebeg Melod, so sensitive to God, so concerned about what is happening, can't do anything but speak to the king, which is a risk because the king could say, you annoy me off with his head. But he doesn't stop there. Look at what he says. He says, my lord, the king, these men have acted wickedly in all that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet. Underlying translation You have also done wickedly. You know what I'm saying? I mean, if I make a decision in my house that's a wrong decision, I can't blame it on the kids. Well, the kids are the ones who wanted to go to wherever they wanted to go. So what if something bad happened? It's not my fault. It's the kids I gave in to them. No, you made the decision. And so what he is saying here is, King, you have acted wickedly. You have blown it. There's a risk here. Because if you come up to your boss tomorrow, try this. Say, hey, boss. For those of you that have bad bosses, you're a horrible boss. You have no idea how to run this place. You do things wrong. Let me tell you how to do it right. What do you think is going to happen in most cases? Your boss is going to say, I never saw it that way. You are so right. We are going to make whole-scale changes. You're fired. (laughs) There you go. There's a change. Because that's really what's happening, right? This man, Ebed-Melech, realizes what the cost of obedience is. It's not going to be easy. He could have done what I might have done, which is gotten on his knees and prayed, Oh, God, save Jeremiah. But that's not the way he works. He was sensitive to what God told him to do, and he responded 
placing his life in danger. Why? And we must understand this. Because obedience is risky. And sometimes it will cost you everything. And I think the failure of many of us in following God is we don't expect the risk, but we expect the blessing. And when we face the costs of the risk, we get angry at God because we didn't get the blessing that we actually expected. Because the blessing that God gives to those who are obedient is a deeper fellowship, not better circumstances. Jeremiah never got better circumstances. Things went wrong for him all the time. But I would imagine if he were today, he would say, I wouldn't do it over again if I had to. Even Malik, in the same way, facing those costs and those risks said, I will stand. Because obedience is risky, and it often costs us something. Second lesson I think we can learn from this <clears throat> is that obedience is for the all-star as well as the ordinary person. The obvious all-star is Jeremiah. I mean, Jeremiah had a prophetic call. I mean, he had an experience with God that completely changed his life. On the flip side, Ebed-Melech did not have the type of experience that Jeremiah had, but he still had an experience with God that called him to do something right now in his life. There's six words, I think, that fits this well. It's these. For such a time as this. How many of you are doing this? For such a time as this. Okay, six. He got it right. He's not that technically challenged. For such a time as this. ebed Melech is not mentioned in Scripture except in this context. We don't hear about him. In fact, he's someone I came across by reading a book by somebody else. I've never heard about him, even though I've read Jeremiah several times, completely forgotten him. He is an ordinary man. But for such a time as this, God raised him up to actually be a part of of delivering Jeremiah from that cistern because in the third point we're going to see is that God fulfills his promises. God made a promise to Jeremiah. You're going to get your head beat in. You're going to get thrown in prison. You're going to have nobody listen to your message. It's going to be a horrible prophetic ministry, but don't be afraid. I will rescue you. Could you imagine Jeremiah getting soaked into that mud, kind of slipping down, just kind of wondering what's going on? I don't know. If it was me, I would be saying, God, where are you? Hello, this is a little too long, whatever, whatever. But I wonder if he wasn't thinking of that initial promise that God would rescue him. Now, to me, all of you are special. And I know once you say everybody's special, then nobody's special kind of thing. But I really like being a part of this church. You're a great group of people to be a part of. But I'm going to be honest with you. You're all pretty ordinary. Sorry. Maybe some of the kids will grow up to be president or something like that, but I just don't see it here. You may be president of an association, that's fine, that's great, but not of the United States. But here's the thing about Ebed-Melech. For such a time as this, this ordinary, unknown, minuscule in the grains of the sands of life, man, for such a time as this, God raised him up to do something for God. You may sit there and agree with me. Yeah, you know what? I'm ordinary, but don't settle for that. Because there is a time, whenever that time is going to come, but there will be such a time as this for you when God will raise you up 
and say, now is the time to go against the grain, to make a stand right here, right now, and understand it's going to be risky, but I will use you to further my purposes. That is exciting. Because realistically, with a planet of 6.5 billion people, the 200 of us that are here aren't necessarily going to be the great world changers. I doubt 100 years from now we're going to be in a history book somewhere, whether it's even church history, that Harvest Community Church did such and such. But in the eyes of God and in his history book, each and every one of us, like Ibn Melech, have that such a time as this time coming. And will we be ready to respond as we are sensitive to God and acting on what he has spoken to us? I think that's a big lesson because obedience is for the all-star as well as for the ordinary people. I would say a lot of people freak out what happens when Billy Graham dies. Who's going to be the great evangelist for the church? I don't think God's worried. I think God is saying y'all are. Y'all are the evangelists. You're the ones that are going to be bringing people to Jesus. It's not about Billy Graham. It's about God in us. Third lesson that I think is important is this. God is faithful to what he promised. To Jeremiah, in the beginning, like we've mentioned several times already, God told him it's not going to be easy, and it wasn't. And yet he continued to follow God. He obeyed God. He went against the grain. And even after the siege, the Babylonians came along and rescued him. Not the Israelites, but the Babylonians that said, oh, you're Jeremiah? Yeah, we liked your preaching, man. Would have made it a lot easier if they would have just listened to you. But we like your preaching, and we want you to stay behind, and we want you to be a part of the remnant. And so Jeremiah stayed behind, and he was part of the remnant. But you know what happened? Part of the remnant didn't listen to what Jeremiah said through God. And ultimately, what happened? They rebelled, and they took Jeremiah to Egypt. And so he ended up his life in exile. Isn't that a happy ending? Wouldn't that be a great ending to the story? No, that's a horrible ending. Here's a man who's given everything he could possibly be, and he ends up in another country that has basically been a lifelong enemy of his country. I can't imagine if it would be like for me, and I don't, you know, it's, it's a little unrealistic to be captured and taken off to somewhere like Russia and be banned and exiled to Siberia for the rest of my life. That'd be horrible. God is faithful, though. Because what did God say? You're going to have it bad, and he did, but I'm going to rescue you. And he did. He lived. God is faithful to his promises to Zedekiah and the people. He said, listen, surrender and you will live. I guarantee it. You will live. But if you want to keep on fighting, go right ahead. But some of you are going to die by the sword, the famine, and the pestilence. And what happened? They did. God is faithful to his promises. A group of people refused to bow their knee to God and listen to what he said. They rebelled in their hearts. And God said, enough is enough. The time, the end has come, and it was. Many of them lost their families, their homes, their lives, and they ended up in exile as well. God is faithful to his promises, but he's also faithful to Ebed-Melech. Ebed-Melech was part of the remnant. If you want to flip over to chapter 39, get the last glimpse of him. Verse 15, it reads this way, chapter 39. While Jeremiah had been confined in the courtyard of the guard of the Babylonians, the word of the Lord came to him. Go and tell Ebed-Melech the Cushite, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I am about to fulfill my words, to keep my promises against this city through disaster, not prosperity. 
At that time, they will be filled before your eyes. But I will rescue you on that day, declares the Lord. You will not be handed over to those you fear. I will save you, and you will not follow by the sword, but will escape with your life because you trust in me, declares the Lord. Ebeg Melech's promise was fulfilled. God said, you shall live, and he lived. See, guys, obedience is risky. I wish I could stand up here and say, if you will obey God today, your life will be completely different. That's not necessarily going to happen. You may still face the difficult consequences of things that you have done wrong. You may face difficult situations that God just places you in, and that's what it is. Now, mind you, it's not something that we say, oh, that's great, but it's something that is a reality. It's risky. But God can be trusted. See, I think that's what made the difference for Ibn Melech. That ordinary guy to say, you know what? I am experiencing God right now. He is speaking his concern into my heart, and I'm going to respond. And I know that he can be trusted because I've seen the fact that God always fulfills his promises. Let me finish with this. I know some of you are freaking out. It's only 1120. (laughs) Think about the seeds ministry when y'all come 20 minutes early. Whoa, what happened? Fire? Just kidding. When we follow Christ and go against the grain, it's going to cost us something. It's going to cost us something. You might be in the middle of a bad marriage. You might be in the middle of bad circumstances. But when you stand and say, you know what? I'm going to do what God wants me to do. I don't care about that other person's response. I don't care about the changing of circumstances or not. I'm just going to do what God wants me to do, and that's it. That's not going to be easy, and it's going to cost you something. It might cost you a lot of self. It might cost you a lot of pride. It might cost you a lot of pain. It might cost you a lot of hurt. It's going to cost you something because that's the price of obedience. Now, I don't want you to go home, by the way, as I'm thinking about this, and think, man, it really sucks to be obedient. There's nothing to it that's good. No, there's a lot that's good. It's you'll meet God. You meet God in a deeper and fresher way. So even though there is cost, and it will cost you something, can you trust him? Will you trust God with your life, good or bad, what you like or don't like, cost or no cost? Will you say, God, I will trust you? ebed Melech could say that, and the reason I think he could say that, like Jeremiah could say it, is because they experienced, they encountered God. And I think many people can't, trust God because we haven't experienced him and we haven't encountered him. We've met an object of worship. We have not met the one we should worship. And the way we do that, and I think the way Jeremiah did it and the way Ebed-Melech did it is because they were sensitive to God and you only get to be sensitive to God when you are with him. The words of Jesus are, be with me. I know that we talk about this a lot, but it's Jesus' call for us to be with him, to allow him to work in us, and then give us the strength to be able to go against the grain for God, obeying God, because he has so changed our lives and can be trusted, because even though obedience is risky, God is faithful to his promises. And he has promised us, not great circumstances, but he has promised us that he will be with us till the end of the age. In other words, I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. It will be difficult. 
Some of you will die. Some of you will experience great pain, but know this. I will be with you. That's the lesson of Scripture. God with us. Emmanuel, God with us. Who has come to rescue us. To take us from our sin. Bring us into relationship with God. To know Him. To experience Him. To encounter Him. And then change the world. When you see it that way, it makes a world of difference. So my hope today is if you take anything out of this, is go and be with God. And when he speaks to you, and he will, eventually, it's going to cost you something. But he can be trusted. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.